everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and today I thought I would do more of a rant-style podcast, just talk about some of the things that have been going on in the world and some and some comments about them. Really, it's some of the themes that I've been talking about for the last couple years, which is about injustice and you know, the Christian response to injustice, the looming totalitarianism, and how are we to deal with that in a biblical way. I also want to talk about the Bible's view of in, of justice, really, because it's a, it's, I mean, it's kind of the theme of the Bible, if not, I mean, it might be the main point of the Bible is justice. And so the worldly injustice that frustrates us as we listen to our uh, you know, conservative talk radio, it's answered in a lot of ways through the Bible. So we'll talk about that and then just sort of end on some general tips. And I'll talk about some prophecy stuff that I've been working on with the series that I've been doing about the Bible prophecy timeline. So the first part of this podcast will be a bit of a downer since it's just a list of various things that are happening in the world that I have under the umbrella worldly injustice. So I wanted to mention them and just comment briefly on them. So I have the vaccine mandates that are going on. And yeah, a lot of people are losing their jobs. It's gotten more out of hand than I would have thought with that. They're going a lot more serious with that. And it leads me to believe that it's going to get even more serious if it ever gets better. One of the logical conclusions to this is that it's going to make conservatives the underclass if you take the premise that the majority of the people that are not taking the vaccine and therefore losing their jobs are conservatives. It's sort of a backdoor way to make conservatives an ultimate underclass if you run the tape forward. What I mean is if you could imagine this turning into sort of an actual communist kind of thing or where, you know, one party takes over and sort of makes their political enemies the, you know, illegal, basically, uh, you can see them justifying that because in a few years, conservatives will be, you know, mostly poor and will not be participating in society. So you'll have this very distinct uh, class system with those that are in power and those that aren't, at least that's one possible way that this could develop. Yes, some of these people that have lost their jobs will bounce back, will find better uh, careers or start their own businesses or have a success in that. But I would say the majority won't. And it's going to be hard for them to, you know, participate in a lot of the other things, you know, unemployment and different things if they make that reliant upon the vaccine or the vaccine passport or what have you. You know, I would like to see an agorist uh, sort of utopia develop out of this, but it's not likely to happen because of, you know, additional regulations that will occur uh, on them. One of the things that makes me think about is the importance of the local church, and I would encourage you to become a part of a local church if you're not already. I think it's going to be, in a lot of ways, the last sort of stand institutionally that uh, we'll be able to, to have and to do a lot of good work through. So, uh, so I would encourage you to check into that. Next in my list of worldly injustices is, you know, stuff about, you know, people just not being thrown in jail that should. And it, we could go anywhere with this. I mean, we could go from Hunter Biden to the COVID-19 origin story, which these recent documents from DARPA that were released showing not only was Peter Daszak involved with the creation of this with, you know, eventually got Anthony Fauci to, to fund it and do it all but was trying to get DARPA to fund it. One of the interesting things about those documents that 
I don't see anybody talking about is that Moderna was involved with Peter Daszak in 2018, trying to get, you know, uh, uh, the DARPA to, to fund this project. And DARPA was like, no, that's kind of illegal and kind of dangerous. We're not going to do it. But Moderna, you know, they, they outline the virus. There's the virus that, you know, we know of as COVID-19. So Moderna's first and only product was a vaccine for a virus. It obviously helped to create according to these documents. But anyway, so, you know, we see the NIH guy stepping down, but that's hardly justice or anything. I mean, we're talking about the guy who created illegally this, uh, this weapon of mass destruction and released it in Wuhan, China, is in charge of the uh, response of really the world and how they're dealing with this. And he gets to decide what is true and what is false with regard to this whole pandemic. It's, it's craziness, obviously, but it goes to the larger story of injustice and people not getting in trouble for things. I mean, conservatives are thrown in jail and the key tossed away for the slightest infraction. And on the other side, anybody that doesn't fit the narrative or is a part of the right uh, political scene literally can't go to jail. They can do anything. And, you know, it's just part of a news cycle and we move on. Of course, we have the media and it particularly it's lies about, you know, the vaccine clearly being just in the bag for the pharmaceutical companies with the vaccine damage, just never getting any play or the, the lack of efficacy or the complete lies about who's in the hospital and who's not obviously a metric that's very hard to prove, which is why they always say it because they know you can't really disprove them. But there are people that are keeping good track and it does seem like that's hitting the, the news more often that like 75% of the people in the hospital are those that are vaccinated. But, you know, and you, I know that if you're like me, you, you have this idea that one day everybody will know it and a day, you know, coming soon, everybody will know that it was a mistake and that you will be justified and everything's going to be fine. Even if it's not going to be fine, uh, may, maybe they'll at least know that you were right. And I would say, please don't put your hopes in that. I do not see that happening. I mean, I see bad things happening, but I don't see anybody admitting that they were wrong. I don't see that just even as a possibility psychologically. And I also see that the people who are to blame for this have so much on the line. I mean, literally, if you got caught knowing that something was a safe and effective treatment and you actively told people that it wasn't, even though you had no science to back that up, case in point, ivermectin, a, recently, a recent study that went through all the history of ivermectin in the medical literature. So it was just a survey of medical literature about ivermectin particularly about its toxicity. And of course, ivermectin is an incredibly safe drug. It won the Nobel Prize in part because it was so crazy safe. And anyway, in this, I think, survey over the last 20, 20 years, they found not one death from an overdose of ivermectin. And this is a drug that has been taken billions of times. It's given out like candy in lots of different countries, right? So there's opportunity. They even had people that there's a case in this uh, serve, uh, this study of a woman who tried to kill herself, taking I think it was 100 times more than the you know high dosage of ivermectin, and was released from the hospital with no long-term problems. So yes, it's it's incredibly safe, and so the only question is, is it effective? And obviously it is. I mean, it's a protease inhibitor, which is the new Pfizer-mectin drug. On that point, I'm hearing that the Merck version, the uh, uh, whatever named for Thor's hammer is not 
uh, safe at all. And that there's some really funny business with that. So I haven't heard anything about the Pfizer version of it, uh, but the Merck drug I'm hearing is not great. But anyway, my point is that they're going to lie about that too. There's, there's so much on the line for the people that have uh, uh, said the lies about this. I could see high profile assassination cases happening with COVID-19 in the future. You know, the, 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 the anti-vaxxers or the pro-ivermectiners could be dosed with just huge amounts of an inoculum of this virus, you know, just somebody walking into the street or meeting them or whatever. I mean, I, I know this sounds conspiratorial, but it's exactly what I would do if I was in that situation and hire an assassin with a, you know, a vial. Cause you know, the, how severe your case of, of COVID-19 is and the spike protein is mostly based on how, how much you start with, you know, if somebody sneezes right in your face, You've got whatever it is, trillions or billions of viruses that immediately start replicating, right? So they, so you just get hit really, really quickly with this replication cycle. By the way, replication and dealing with replication early on is why it's so important to do early treatments and to do everything that you can. I mean, gargling with, uh, you know, antibacterial or whatever stuff and nasal spray kills just the viruses in your throat and nasal passages. And that alone, you know, reduces the amount of viruses and their replication and the, the less viruses, the less worse of an outcome, basically. Anyway, I don't want to get into that right now, but the point is I could see them doing that. And it doesn't take that many high profile assassinations to change the narrative to whatever they want. So it doesn't matter if 99% of the people in the hospital are, uh, are vaccinated and, and ADE is real and it's all happening because if they could just control the narrative with a few high profile uh, anti-vaxxers, it, it, it just they have such control of the media. It doesn't really matter. I don't even, in other words, don't trust that the truth comes out with this because there's too much on the line for the truth to come out with this. So yes, it may be that people die in vast numbers, but it's not going to go your way and nobody's going to see the error of their ways. And you got to stop trusting that that's going to happen. Censorship is next on my list. And obviously this every day we see more you know, conservatives or anybody just being taken off the various platforms. It's actually quite sad, you know, these, you know, little trickles of views from Rumble or Odyssey or whatever. Um, and it's just the, the, it's a dying age of information. And it makes me um, think that I was lucky enough to be a part of something very unique in history, which was this short time in which, you know, the, the age of information exploded and all the tools online got good enough for the short window and they weren't evil yet. So they would rank videos based on merit and keywords and watch time and things like that, as opposed to like throttling things because they didn't fit various narratives or whatever. So there was a time of ministry early on, um, thinking maybe, you know, 10 or 12 years ago or whatever it was, there was just short window. It was just perfect. You know, I was doing a lot of apologetics and gospel videos and different kinds of, you know, evangelistic stuff that I was able to, you know, see a lot of fruit from that ministry and, and more than probably most people, you know, in the history of the world have been able to reach, you know, and as a result, I built a platform. And my main point here is that I think the age of platforms are over, that the people that have platforms now are valuable. The people that you listen to, the podcasts that you like, support them. Don't support me, support them. I'm doing okay and I don't need your support, but they do need your support. And I would encourage you to have a regular way to support them. And the reason is because 
they're the last. They're the last ones. There's no more coming behind them. Yes, it may be that somebody might make it big on Odyssey or whatever, but not in the numbers that it used to be. The podcast, I think, uh, field is still a little bit valuable, but not in the same way. Not in the same way. You can't find, I mean, the algorithms on search on podcasts are a little bit better than anywhere else still. And podcasts are, of course, better because it's self-hosted and 100% of the people that want to get something will get it. It's one of the only things in the world that are like that. So as long and until they come for servers, which could be literally this year, uh, it's going to be the last stand for that kind of stuff. So support those that have a platform. You're not getting any more uh, people and people with a platform. Let me say to you, you know, consider how important it is that you have this, uh, this group that listens to you and, and take it very seriously because as I said, I mean, it's, it's you or nothing. And, and the new world order is scared of people with platforms and it's going to find a way to deal with them because they are this sort of outlier in this system. And, uh, and they're going to be targeted in, in various ways going forward. So, you know, uh, make the most use of your platform. Next on my list is elections. I know this is a thing of injustice that a lot of people think about. And, you know, I've been thinking about unfair elections since like 2008 and Ron Paul in the documentary Black Box Voting. And it's interesting that none of those issues in that documentary were ever addressed. I mean, it's the exact same problems, just a different company name now because they sold the company. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's and I know a lot of my, you know, super conservative sort of Fox Newsy type of, of, of friends and people that I know. They're, they got a lot of hope on, you know, midterms and next election and next presidential election. And I would just really strongly encourage people not to put too much hope in all that stuff. I mean, do your duty and vote and, you know, do whatever you feel called to do with that. But uh, don't put a lot of hope in that getting better. I mean, what possible reason would you have to believe that it's going to get better? I mean, if there was fraud before and whoever had, if there was fraud and if they had the power to do that with a conservative in office, what makes you think that they're going to, that's going to get better with, uh, with Democrats in office? I mean, if, if, if it behooves them to, to do that, I mean, it's, it, it hasn't got better no matter who's in office is my point. And it's certainly not going to get better when, when, uh, uh, the people that had the most to gain from it are in power and they have a lot of power. So I think honestly, the age of elections is, uh, kind of over. They may throw us a bone here and there to make us believe that it's still intact. But, you know, my main point here is just, you can't put your hope in that. You can't be, I mean, imagine if you, oh, it's all going to be fine in the midterms and that doesn't work out. Where are you then? You know, where are you then? Are you just, are you lost because of that? Don't be lost because of that. Anticipate it and, you know, put your hope somewhere else. Next up is the evil being taught to our children and our recourse to that having uh, been cracked down upon. So you've got you know, all this stuff coming out about what's happening in the schools and then these school board meetings going viral with people, you know, speaking truth to power. And of course that is not cool in a communist system and won't be allowed in the future. And so they're sort of institutionalizing or starting the, the architecture to make that, if not illegal, uh, you know, too costly to do. And this is just, I mean, it's part of a system that cannot allow truth to be spoken like that. And I honestly don't know what the answer is for this situation. Obviously you can homeschool or 
private schools, but both of those things really require to be financially free to do so. Hopefully new sort of, you know, systems will develop to be able to do that more. I know our church is doing like a church kind of school, kind of private school kind of thing. Maybe more churches can do that. But of, of course, they're going to eventually turn the eye of Sauron is going to look at the homeschool system and it's going to crack down on that too. I mean, so much of this is biding time. And, you know, I also think, you know, if you got to work with the public school system, you got to work with it. And it's just about, you know, doing what you can with teaching your kids. And that is, if that's all you can do, that's all you can do. You can, of course, pray for your kids to protect them from that stuff. This is a world they're going to have to grow up in anyway. It's their world as well. So they might as well learn how to navigate it. Uh, and you can at least be a guiding uh, light to, to show them what's happening uh, to the best of your ability. Next up is financial injustice, and this mostly has to do with the Federal Reserve and the central banks all around the world printing money out of nowhere, and there's this short time when everybody knows they're about to go to a different financial system, so they're basically giving everybody who is evil blank checks to gain just massive amounts of power and wealth in the short term where, you know, the melt-up uh, this money is real. You can actually buy farmland with it when you are given a blank check for trillions of dollars. You can actually buy something in the short term before it's worthless. And so they're transferring the wealth of the world and what the Federal Reserve is doing to basically steal everybody's uh, 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 retirement in their homes is, is going to be just this massive thing that's going to happen when the merry-go-round ends here or the musical chairs, I guess is the analogy, ends and everybody's left holding the bag on these massively inflated home prices that uh, uh, basically will default. I don't know how it's going to end up, really. I think there's so many questions with the where the financial system is going to end up. But whatever it is, it's definitely not going to work out for the little guy. I can guarantee you that. Next up, the border crisis. I know this is a big deal for a lot of people. It's probably more of a big deal the closer you are to the border. But it just seems such a crazy injustice, and it's just a just peak clown world sort of situation. I think the more that you think this has anything to do with, you know, rational stuff, anything except for they're obviously intending to get rid of the country. I mean, that's the only way that you can make sense of this, is that nationalism of all types, not just America, but every single nation must go. It's a fire sale of nations. They must be discredited. They must be destroyed. They must be bankrupted. They will go because we're not going to be a nation, a, a world of nation states for much longer. And so that's the plan anyway. So if that's the plan, then all of this makes perfect sense. And it's not peak clown world. It is quite strategic. And so, you know, the more people that they can get in here to do, it does all kinds of things. There's a lots of things that it benefits a new world order system, but it's, it's basically the, the same thing that they did with Europe, with the refugees there. And, you know, the, uh, what's the name of that group that was in charge of that is also kind of in charge of this sort of policy with the border here. So I know it frustrates a lot of people. And partially, I think the reason for that frustration is because none of this makes sense. You know, if you haven't quite shifted from like, Hey, why are they doing this policy that makes no sense? And will obviously end in disaster, then you start to get it. Oh, it's supposed to end in disaster. That's right. It's actually a, a liberating feeling to recognize that because if you're stuck in that place of like, 
Why are they so stupid that they don't see it? Then it's just a constant frustration. Moving on to, I think the next logical question about this is, well, is there anything that we can do about it? How do we stop this runaway train of this super state or whatever it is, this new world order? And I mean, you know, just looking at it from the American perspective, I think that, you know, of course, America was built kind of like early Rome was, you know, it was built to a system uh, created to deal with the problem of kings and the need for totalitarianism. I mean, early Rome was such a brilliant system and they had two consuls, so there wasn't even one person with power and they could only hold that office one time and the term limit was one year. It was just, and if you even hinted that you were a king for that first, you know, whatever it was, hundreds of years of Rome, I mean, they would just off with your head. I mean, the idea of being uh, a king was just absolutely anathema in that early Republic. And we sort of had a system like that in our system of justice and, and everything was really cool for there for a while. But over time, we just started giving the federal government this like sort of ring of power, you know, <laughs> and it just kept getting more and more powerful. And that ring of power was just sitting, you know, in a drawer in the Oval Office, you know, in the desk of, of the president. And it was just sitting there, you know, and we kept giving it more power and it started glowing, you know, this ring of power. And it was just waiting for an evil person to be like, hey, what's this ring doing in here? Why, do, why doesn't anybody just want to like, use this to take complete control of everything, you know? And so we gave them that ring of power and they're just using it. I mean, what do we expect? My point mostly here is that that, that power is so great. The power of the state that we've given them over the years is so huge now. And the tools that they have, especially with the sort of censorship and the technocracy and the spying and the whatever is it's just there's no viable alternative to this especially i think with the media situation uh, particularly with the fcc guidelines being thrown away during the clinton era where you know it used to be that you could only own so many newspapers or own so many tv stations and now that's all gone so it's all owned by Basically, the people who got the blank checks, they spent it on things like uh, news uh, stations and that kind of thing. So, yeah, they have complete control of, over the narrative. And we all know how powerful that is. You can basically not go to jail if the narrative is on your side because that's just and you can you can get people to go to jail if the narrative is on your side. It's all about the narrative. My point is, you know, how could you possibly fight against it? I know a lot of, you know, sort of your don't tread on me types are like, well, you know, don't come to my door and all this stuff. And, and, you know, more power to you. I mean, it's your American right and everything else, but run that logically through. Is there any situation where that behooves you at all? Is there any good that comes over out of you dying in a blaze of glory? I mean, I mean, I guess for some people that have, you know, nothing better to look forward to or whatever, taking out a bunch of people is, you know, maybe the best that can, they can do or something like that. But but even, and that's the more extreme example, but I'm more mostly, and I, I don't want to come across as like, well, there's nothing we can do. We just got to go into this totalitarianism because I do think that Christians are salt and they prevent the decay of the, this meat of the world that is decaying, but we slow it down and we are called and Christians have always been at the forefront of those things that are injustices that are going on in the world. Christians were behind, you know, the freeing of the, the slaves in England and, you know, every other good thing, you know, a good Christian was likely behind it that happened. And so they're, they're all involved in those kind of things and they push back and they're the people that are 
I mean, most everybody these days that are, you know, voices that you hear that are speaking truth, there's, they're probably a Christian at this point, or at least lean that way. Also, basically everything that I have said so far can happen even without a false flag event or some other major, you know, bad thing happening that is blamed on, you know, conservatives or anti-vaxxers or whatever to uh, make everything go and fast forward. You know, if it's sufficiently bad, of course, the narrative is going to do its job and it will just 100% say, something has to be done. These people need to be whatever, whatever. And if it, it really just depends on how, what, how bad the thing was as to how bad their reaction will be, because the media will do anything that they're told to do at this point. So if they tell them that the only logical thing to do here is to put everybody that, uh, whatever does this or thinks this into camps or whatever, I mean, it, that's an extreme version, but that's the kind of thing that could happen. And really, I think it could happen tomorrow if the thing was bad enough, right? If the initial thing was bad enough, they can basically have a blank check to do anything or to call for whatever thing. I also think that um, it's important for that to be more of a global uh, subset of people that will develop because, you know, these people that are against the world government are now a global group. And it, it's really you know, those people who are resisting the vaccine mandates and all these kinds of things across the world, these massive protests are a, a global problem now. So I think that whatever false flag it is will be, uh, you know, for everybody. The final point on this sort of negative stuff that I want to drive home is that it will end in bloodshed. I mean, think about it logically. That's where it almost is now. And it, it, what I'm saying is that it's going to get a lot worse in terms of narrative against their enemies. They've only just begun to paint the picture of this enemy of the world, and they're going to get really good at it. And eventually, you know, if they can't get anybody mad enough to do evil on their own, their political enemies, then they'll, you know, get some uh, false flag to do it. But either way, they're going to continually increase the detail of this portrait that they will paint for everybody about the evil, evil, conservative terrorists that must be dealt with. They are killing your children with this disease and we, everything could go back to normal if it wasn't for them. And I know you're hungry, but you wouldn't be hungry if it wasn't for them. And propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. Does anybody deny that that's where this is going? And they're already on edge right now. And they, and of course, they don't have the political will or uh, uh, ability to kill anybody right now or to send them to camps. But I mean, how far away are we from that? It's just a matter of I, either an event or time. It doesn't even need an event. It just needs time to develop that character and therefore the, uh, the political will to literally take people to camps and to kill them. And people think that they're doing, you know, a great service to the world. It seems inevitable from a historical perspective that that's where this is going. And I know that we have a normalcy bias that we think, oh, it really won't get to that. But think it through. It really does get to that. If we go into communism, as I've uh, described in an earlier podcast, communism is killing. You know, that's a necessary component to the beginning of any communist system, since Communism, by its definition, requires everybody to be a part of the commune, to equally share everything that they have. You know, you're going to have in any given population a bunch of people that says, you know, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to share 
my stuff so you guys do whatever you want to do and then they say no that's not how this works you actually have to we need 100 compliance and the if a person says well no i'm not going to do it what do you do with that person hence why communism has killed millions and millions and millions and millions of people so what can you do um, what is the christian response to this and i think in part the practical stuff is important to note here you can go buy some land and start a homestead in a rural red state and all that stuff and store food and, and start a garden and, and all that stuff is great. And I think it is a part of the future. I think that those things done prudently are going to be used by God and it will buy us time, but that's ultimately all it can do in the majority of situations. I think for the most part, there's going to be pockets of people that get really serious about that kind of stuff that can actually make it happen. But I think for the most part, yeah, it just bides a little bit of time when they decide to close the window and to close the loopholes. And if they do go to like a mandatory, you know, uh, ID situation and all the rest of that kind of stuff, um, I think it necessarily results in war and civil war and stuff. But as I said, I think the power of the state is just so massive that whatever we do is just, just a matter of time before that gets crushed and they'll have whatever mandate that they need to justify the evil of these people and how vermin-like they are and they're in pockets of your rural red states and they should be stamped out and their land taken and everything else. And, you know, so don't hold any of that stuff too tightly. And I think that you know, trying to find ways to preserve your wealth from inflation and stuff is a whole different thing, too. It makes me think of that uh, that uh, section in that Alexander Solzhenitsyn book, The Gulag Archipelago, where he says, you know, the people that went to the camps initial, initially in Soviet Russia, he's talking about, the people that, like, couldn't deal with the fact that their life was over in the camps, there was no getting out. Yes, that they made a sound like that they were interrogating you to find the truth and prove your innocence, but they had to quickly find out that there was no proving your innocence. If you were there, you weren't getting out and your wealth was gone. Your family was gone. You, everything that you thought you had, you no longer had. And he would say that the people that couldn't make that transition to like, this is my life now. I own nothing anymore. And this is where I have to sort of start over uh, in this camp. Those people could mentally make it, but the people that still thought that there was justice in the world and that they still owned some land somewhere, those were the people that couldn't make it mentally in those situations. So we need to hold things, everything that we have now, and sort of, again, look forward and say, and, and be okay with the worst case scenario. What if I lose it all? What then? A similar thing that we need to do mentally is we, especially as Americans, we need to understand that we cannot put our hope in the justice of this world. If you have any kind of belief that, oh, the truth is going to come out about this, or maybe the elections are going to be fine, or maybe uh, the, the, the innocent will not be always guilty from here on out, you have to understand that this world is not a place of justice. We have been deceived as Americans in a sense because, you know, liberty and justice for all, right, was the sort of tagline of this country. And it was a great experiment that lasted 200 years and it was wonderful. And there's been, you know, similar situations in history that sort of tried that. But the aggregate, the, the, the world is a place where tyrants 
rule over people. It is a place where sin and Satan is the ruler of this world, right? I mean, that is the point of this right now is that we're trying to be salt and light, but it is decaying and it is not a place of justice. And the Bible is basically telling us that it is not a place of justice and that you should not put your hope in it. But our hope in, in terms of justice, as I say, I think the Bible is all about it. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. But just think about it. The last page in the Bible basically is the great white throne judgment in which it says, look, everybody that ever has done wickedly, they're going to get what they deserve. And it's going to be really, really bad. And it's not a one size fits all thing. It says that they're judged according to their works. So, and I'm sure we're going to see that. We're going to be like, yee, yay, yay, yay. These people are getting judged so severely. Is that really, is it that necessary? I mean, they get what they deserve. We have to be like, okay, that's a thing that's happening. They're, that's not me. You know, that's not what I do. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So he wants us to know, don't worry about the, the, them getting what they deserve because they will get what they deserve. You should pity them for getting what they deserve. It would have been better for them if they had never been born. They have an eternity of horrors, basically, uh, in front of them. So they deserve our pity, and they deserve our love. We are to love our enemies. But we cannot get caught up in in, in wanting to see their justice in, 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 in a way that's uh, not healthy. Obviously, you know, there is a sense in which we work towards that in our salt and light uh, work, but uh, we can't put, it, put our hopes in it. Another point that I would like to make is that we need to understand that what we're seeing may be a part of God's sovereign justice and that we need to understand that our limited time frame that we're here on earth prohibits necessarily us from understanding the scope of it. Think, for example, the prophets in the Bible who you know, things were going well there for a while with uh, with David and Solomon. I mean, there were some bumps in the road for sure, but then eventually it got really bad. And one of the cries of the prophets were, were that, hey, this is not just anymore. There was supposed to be justice, and now there's the, the prosperity of the wicked, and everything is just really going off the rails here, God. And God's answer to those prophets was essentially, oh, I see it, and I'm going to judge them with Babylon. I'm going to take Babylon down there, I'm going to carry them off, and it's going to be, that's what I'm going to do. And then the prophets were like, yeah, well, I mean, the Babylonians are also kind of unjust, Lord, and, and they're, you know, I mean, they're not exactly great. And his answer to them was, well, yeah, I know that too. I'm going to judge Babylon for its, uh, you know, injustices as well. They're going to get what they deserve too, but I'm going to use them to judge Israel right now. And, you know, think of the prophet that lived during that time where he saw Babylon take, you know, Ezekiel, you know, was literally sitting around when a guy ran in and said, hey, Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonians. Ezekiel never lived to see what the fruit of the, you know, the Babylonian empire being judged itself or, or whatever else. All he knew is that the Babylonians seemed to prosper. He just didn't have a long enough lifespan to see God's justice at work. Make no mistake, God is all about justice. It is his name. It is his shem. It is who he is. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. 
And really the story of the Bible, if you think about it, is the story and the recognition of a fallen world and the subsequent injustice and how that's dealt with. And so Adam and Eve, of course, and I saw a, a good video about this uh, in which they talked about, you know, in the animal kingdom, a praying mantis can eat its mate or a honey badger can kill a snake. And we don't consider that unjust because they're different qualitatively from Adam and Eve, who are image bearers of God. And part of that is that they, because of that equality of man innately, should be understood to deal with each other with this sort of equal justice. That is sort of a thing that exists in our kingdom that doesn't exist in other kingdoms. And you can see, of course, the injustice that exists sort of pre-Abraham uh, and all that stuff and and how God, in fact, in the same uh, passage in Deuteronomy, it says that when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion in his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So this is a reference to the Tower of Babel in which, you know, these people were building the Tower of Babel and God divides them uh, up the nations according to the number of the sons of God. So they're sort of ruled by these spiritual entities. And as uh, Michael Heiser says, you know, in the next chapter, God says, Abraham, you know, you come over here of you, I'm going to make a great nation. So the story of the Bible is in one sense, the, the, the Abrahamic, the, the Mosaic, the law situation, the people that God says, you guys, I want you to be governed by a law. I want this law to be like, if you do this thing, you get this thing, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I want you to, to follow this law. I mean, how, how ingrained is the, even the concept of the law in the Jewish mind, right? It is the same thing. It's almost synonymous with law, i.e. justice. And we see that this plays out with regard to justice. We have the judges, right? Before uh, you know, before the kings, we had the judges, and that's what their job was, to distribute justice. And then you had the kings who also had that job to distribute uh, justice. Then you have all the kings, you know, after Solomon, the good kings and the bad kings, and they sort of alternate. And they're almost defined by their lack of justice in this. And I keep going back to Deuteronomy 32, which says things like, Vengeance is mine and recompense. And, you know, skipping down to verse 41, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. It sort of finishes this song with rejoice, O him, O heavens, and bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries and repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So really the, the summary of that sort of summary in the song of Moses is, don't worry, I'm going to totally judge everybody that deserves it, and I'm going to vindicate those that deserve it. It is a recognition that there is injustice, and there is a need for righteous judgment of those people, and there is an inability to find a perfect judge, whether they are judges or kings in this world, to do that justice. And so we need a true and good judge. Of course, the logical outgrowth of the law is our inability to follow it perfectly. Hence, 
why Jesus, as the centerpiece of this judgment concept, comes to be a propitiation, to, to be our judgment uh, of this law, and that we can have his righteousness, because he did not deserve judgment. He was a spotless lamb. He did no guile. He had no guile. He was perfect. And it is through his righteousness that we wear as a cloak, if we have been redeemed, that is why we can be indwelled with the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit of God is uh, a perfect. He cannot abide in, in us with imperfection, which is why we are forever seen with Christ's righteousness. It is the avenue for which the new covenant uh, exists. The ability to change our hearts and minds to make us new creations is via the Holy Spirit, but we can't get the Holy Spirit without being righteous, but we can't be righteous unless we have Jesus's righteousness to be clothed with. So in, if you talk, if you think about the whole concept of that, it's all about really justice as well. And as I mentioned, it culminates in the day of the Lord, which is all about justice for those that are living at the time. The specific evildoers in the end times get what appears to be a just gruesome series of judgments. Uh, but then, of course, the eternal judgment, the uh, resurrection to shame and everlasting contempt, as Daniel says it, as the great white throne judgment, which all people there are unsaved and will all be brought up before God to answer for their various crimes, something that will be punished to the greatest extent of the law, you can be sure. So the Bible is about justice. The Bible is recognizing that, hey, things are not supposed to be good. We as Americans have to figure this out a little bit more than other people have had to. It's been easier in the past for people that were living in very rough times when it was quite obvious to them that justice wasn't a thing that existed in the world, which has been the story of most of human history. They did not have any trouble understanding that justice wasn't deserved or uh, inev inevitable. So what should a Christian do in response to this? And this is, I think, the, the point of this podcast, really. And I've had some insight about this recently, uh, in part because, uh, you know, a friend of the family got, you know, radically saved, right? You know, the kind of thing where, you know, radical transformation, one day was in darkness, the other in light. And it reminded me that, of course, that thing happens, you know, that miracles happen. That God is working in building his kingdom. You know, the gates of hell shall not prevail against God's kingdom. And that means that no matter how much Satan tries to uh, oppress and kill and do all the worst stuff that he can to Christians, the kingdom of God, which is the growth of the people that are elected to salvation, and I don't mean that necessarily in the Calvinist sense, just in the sort of theological sense, that that is happening. It's happening. Miracles are happening all around us. I think of it as this sort of invisible mission field that you don't know is existing until you decide that you want to help. <laughs> and then when you do, you're like, hey, wow, well, look at all this stuff going on over here. Wow, there's like a kingdom being built and there is a battle being waged. And this is actually what's important. You know, the radical miracle transformation of, you know, turning uh, uh, drug dealers into deacons and, <laughs> and this thing that's happening and that happens, you know. And if you don't know that, that haven't had a part of your life that has seen that as a reality, that know that true Christianity is 
people being turned from one creation to another creation, a, a miracle of the heart. So how do we get there? The short answer is that we need to start dealing with the sin in our lives. We need to be sin assassins and we need to do it for the right reason, which is that we need to understand that the sin in our life is quenching the Holy Spirit's work in our life. You know, if we're saved, we're saved, but you know, it is quenching the Holy Spirit. And if you, and what you need more than anything right now is a thirst for the word of God. You need a genuine thirst for prayer. You need to genuinely love the things of God and begin to hate the things of the world in your heart because you are so in tune with God and you can't get there if you are sinning and just quenching that Holy Spirit every time a spark you know, shows up and a flame starts to kindle. So you've got to do that. Your motivation for doing that is because you want to be given more and more of God and more and more of his spirit to desire the things of God. So that's an incredible thing. And once you have that, it starts to become this sort of flywheel that empowers its own sort of action. And uh, that's what we need right now is desire. And you need it, especially if things go really bad. And, you know, if you're left in that situation where you don't have any more property and you're in a camp and you're a Job situation where his kids were taken away and his wife, and he says, though he slay me yet, I will trust him. You know, you don't get there if you are not already, you know, standing on a rock. So we got to deal with that problem in our life, the sin in our life, first and foremost, to get ourselves right and on the right path and why not do that right now? I mean, I mean, time is short, you guys. I mean, we're in the home stretch here and you gotta, there's not much more time to get this ship turned around. So let's go ahead and make a commitment to just start seeking the Lord and the things of the Lord for the purpose of loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength. A couple quick notes before I'm out of here. You know, I just realized that I've never really promoted my wife's books on this podcast. And I think my wife is just incredibly talented as a writer. She writes mostly middle grade uh, fiction, sort of middle grade science fiction fantasy stuff. If you like sort of, you know, Narnia stuff or, or Madeline Lingle, I don't know how to pronounce that name, then you'd really, or whoever would really like my wife's books. I think that they're great for adults too. I, I honestly am blown away by how good they are. Some of, of those are something called The World's Next Door and uh, Vincent in Wonderland is another one. That's like the concept is that it's Alice in Wonderland, but what if Alice uh, was joined by a young Vincent Van Gogh. It's, a, it's an incredibly touching and interesting read. She also has a nonfiction book that she's released recently or semi-recently called Trusting God When You're Struggling, Overcoming Obstacles to Faith. She is writing a couple books right now. She's writing a, a children's book, a younger children's book, and then also a, 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 a co-writing a book about Christian singlehood and thinking biblically about what it means to uh, be single uh, as, a, as a Christian, which is an issue that she's always had a passion for. Anyway, her name on Amazon is C.E. White, the, like my name, C.E. White. Just type that into Amazon. You'll see, uh, as I said, Trusting God When You're Struggling, The World's Next Door, Vincent in Wonderland. And I really encourage people to check it out. She is truly uh, gifted, and I think you'll see what I mean if you have inclination to read. They're also all available as audiobooks. 
Also, I wanted to mention some changes that uh, COVID19criticalcare.com, the frontline COVID19 critical care alliance uh, have, has made to their iMask Plus protocol. So this is an incredibly important resource if you are someone that says, hey, look, I don't want to have to go to the hospital to deal with COVID-19 if I or somebody I know gets it. Uh, I want to try to deal with it myself. It is critical that you go to COVID-19 Critical Care. This is like Pierre, Dr. Pierre Corey's website. These are people, the frontline doctors that have been developing this protocol from the beginning and making changes as needed. And I just wanted to point out that uh, they have made some changes recently. You can go to their, what they call the iMask Plus protocol. This is early, eight, this is prevention and early outpatient protocol. There's actually two different types on the iMask Plus, but I'm talking about the early outpatient. So this is what you would take as soon as you start to get symptoms kind of thing. Now they have other protocols like the Math Plus protocol. That's if you're actually in the hospital. And then also the eye recover management protocol for long haul COVID syndrome. So they've been really thinking about what, what the things that you need to take and what the dosages that you need to take. And I just really want to point people to that website, COVID-19 critical care, go to iMask plus, and you've got to actually page through the PDF. It's kind of not the best thing to find the actual dosages and whatnot. But the main point is that they have recently increased the ivermectin part of that to double. So, and this is in part because of the higher viral load with Delta. Uh, so the ivermectin is now double what they were recommending when I did that video. I would also make a really big important point that you really need to see all the stuff that they rec they recommend because there are a lot of other supplements that are easy to get on Amazon or whatever right now that are a critical part of this in addition to ivermectin. And there are alternatives to ivermectin that are over-the-counter kind of stuff. Anyway, I would recommend highly going to covid19criticalcare.com. This is a incredible website for these kind of protocols. And, you know, just having a picture of what you need to do, according to these doctors, uh, if you or someone you love gets COVID-19, I think that you'll benefit from following it as much to the letter as you can, because there are some things in there that you wouldn't necessarily think to do. Finally, I wanted to briefly talk about some Bible prophecy issues. And the first thing I guess I wanted to say is that I've been doing this study about the uh, timeline of Bible prophecy. And one thing that I felt it was important to say, I've been talking a lot about how the world government with the 10 Kings like could develop and be something that exists, you know, and will I think be something that exists before the Antichrist arrives on the scene. And I think I've been somewhat guilty of like sort of implying that our current situation will ultimately develop into that 10 nation thing. I'm sort of doing a version of the thing that I always uh, you know, say not to do, which is to like, just assume that you're in the end times. And so whatever is happening will ultimately develop into the end times and, or is the end times. And though I'm kind of a step removed from that saying, well, it's not here, but it could develop. But I think it's also possible that whatever we're going through right now could just be just a separate sort of evil empire that exists separately and distinctly from whatever ends up developing that I think will be uh, ultimately characterized by a 10 nation something coalition around the Mediterranean, which I think is the, the, the important thing there, that 10 nation thing around the Med Mediterranean and whatever wars or need to happen before we get there, it could take a long time. So, you know, 
there's no set time limit absent any kind of obvious things that are already happening in Bible prophecy. And if you know much about, about that or been following that, I don't think that anything has happened with regard to that yet. The final thing I want to do is take a bit of a dig at the Islamic Antichrist theory. I think that you see it sort of falling out of favor, especially now that people are waking up to the idea that there is this sort of weird global government that somehow controls everything and has unlimited money and just a whole lot of power to do basically whatever it wants and that whoever stands against them will be killed or destroyed or whatever. The massiveness of that power, that global government thing, that hidden hand, seems to make anything in the Islamic era, you know, post 9-11 being scared of, you know, terrorism and, and all that stuff, uh, just pale in comparison. I think seeing those guys, and I know we had a little bit of a blip on the radar for the Islamic Antichrist theory recently with the Afghanistan thing and giving them all those weapons uh, and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it still is just a blip. I mean, if you saw the video of them trying to ride treadmills or do jumping jacks, you know, they're still just guys that are so manipulated by this larger global uh, blank check power group that it's just insane to think that they could ever do anything. I think like any cult, which is all that Islam is, it's a cult the same way that uh, the Mormons are, are a cult or the Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult or, the, or Catholicism is a cult. Um, it's just a cult and all cults fade away eventually. And I think that you could say, well, no, Chris, you're not understanding that the Mahdi will show up and it'll be supernatural. And, and then, 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 then it's all going to happen. Well, okay. Uh, but you, you have to understand that what you're now basing this theory happening on is that they're going to get power one day when the supernatural thing happens. And what you're doing is assuming that the supernatural thing is a real prophecy. And one of the things that I did in the book Islamic Antichrist Debunked, and I think one of the most important things about that book, is the research about the so-called last Roman emperor, uh, which is a series of pseudepigraphal writings in the Middle Ages, things like uh, uh, um, Pseudo-Methodius and uh, the Syrian, uh, Ephraim of Syria and that kind of stuff. Basically, in the Middle Ages, there were these Christian forgeries that were apocalyptic in nature, where they would come up with like a version of the end times that was based on their sort of own newspaper eisegesis. And they were in a situation where Rome was at the end of its you know, rope. It, this massive, wonderful empire of Rome was falling. And a lot of the Romans really couldn't handle that psychologically because they had you know, this belief that Rome had become Christian and it was like God's favor was on Rome and all this other stuff, not unlike America, really. So when Rome obviously was falling, they started coming up with these theories about how, it, yeah, it looks like it's falling, but there's going to be this Roman emperor. He's going to come and save the empire and, and Jesus is going to be there. and It's going to be great. And it kind of caught on. It was sort of a genre that caught on at that time in, in, in and around Syria in the Middle Ages, which also happened to be the time that the Hadiths were written in the Quran, you know, and all that stuff was uh, starting to become a thing in that area. And the people that were writing the Hadiths and all this stuff, they didn't know that that was a forgery and had nothing to do with the Bible or Bible prophecy. So they just assumed it was true like everybody else at that time. Uh, and 
they just started incorporating this last Roman emperor idea into their own Hadith and their own eschatology, which is just a mirror image. And one of the things I do in the book is just show, yeah, obviously they were taking the last Roman emperor uh, trope and just copy and pasting that into the, uh, to the Mahdi idea. And they, and the Dijal and that whole thing is just a copy and paste from basically pseudo Methodius and pseudo Ephraim. So, once you understand that the whole concept of the Mahdi and the supernatural savior in Islam is in itself a nonsense thing, it's not a satanic prophecy, it's not in any, any other kind of prophecy, it's just a stupid forgery, uh, then you don't even have that one thing about Islam. Oh, maybe they're going to do that and that's how it's all going to shake down. Well, no, it's not. They're just going to be another pawn in this game of, uh, of Satan. And I do think, you know, you know, maybe it ebbs and flows, I don't know, but uh, I just wanted to, to say my piece about that. <laughs>